Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 79 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I got to speak with a fellow gamer and history lover, Megan Sullivan, host of the History and Games podcast. Her show is a video and audio podcast that celebrates history by revealing the most sensational real stories hidden inside our favorite video games. She has worked for IGN and Apple and has been a history consultant on projects. I want to quickly thank Dr. Jackson Crawford for introducing us and making this podcast episode a reality. In this episode, we chatted about how and why she started History and Games, how to balance personal and professional gaming desires, her process of finding history in games, and how to prioritize games when there's almost too much content. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Awesome sauce. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I want to start you off with probably, hopefully, a pretty easy question, which is when did you get super into ancient history? And or I, we, could, we could go more broadly, history and video games. So kind of at the same time, when I was a kid growing up, I was surrounded by history lovers. So there was always history books around and I was huge into Greek mythology as a kid, like love, love Greek mythology. So I feel like that was kind of the real start of my love of history is it started with like all the crazy stories from Greek and Norse mythology, stuff like that. And then with video games, we had, I mean, this is way back. So I was really little, but we had like an Atari 2600 in our house. So my older siblings would be playing on that. And I grew up in the eighties and nineties. So arcades were still a thing. So video games and history were always kind of part of my life. Nice. That's awesome. And so, like, was there a, a pull between them? Did you did you see them as they could always kind of work together? Or were you kind of like, no, maybe I should, you know, focus more on the history side or more on the gaming side? So I actually am called, uh, I'm part of the generation called the Oregon Trail generation. So we grew up playing Oregon Trail in school. And so I always kind of knew that games and history could go together well. Like I recognized very early on the, you know, 
power of education that video games can provide. So I loved Oregon Trail growing up. And so it, it never occurred to me those two things couldn't go together because all of those educational or they called edutainment games came out at the same time. It was like like math games and history games and they worked. They were really fun to play. So I've always loved both of them together. Oh, that's pretty cool. Did you ever get sort of called out by either parents or, or peers who maybe didn't understand this this weird fascination that we history gamers have um, just for like having our head in the clouds? Like, did you did you encounter the people who were kind of just like, man, you're just mushing your brain. You can't actually learn anything from a video game. No, I got really I got really lucky because I, I had good grades in like high school and not so much like the first couple years of middle school because I just wanted to play video games all the time. But as long as I got good grades, then my parents didn't mind if I played video games. And, you know, by then edutainment games were pretty well known. So every once in a while I'd be like, here's a strategy game that's based on like the Civil War or the Peloponnesian War. And so you could make the argument, well, those are kind of educational. You know, I can learn history from The Legend of Zelda, which is true. I have history and games episodes about the history found in Legend of Zelda. So as long as I kept my grades up, my parents are like, go for it. Have fun with video games. Oh, you were lucky then because my, my experience was so different. It was such a struggle because I definitely had parents who my parents were very set and they were the ones who were like, we will not buy you a gaming system because it will mush your brain and you won't go outside and play with your friends and they were definitely of the it'll mush your brain generation so it was pretty funny i could only like sneak away to my cousin's house in michigan and they had a ps2 so i remember feeling all cool when i was like <laughs> gaming on their playstation and then like no wonder they thought it would it was like this weird cycle where they thought it really was doing the worst because every time we went there which was pretty infrequent like twice a year maybe for a couple of days so any chance i got i was like okay now i have to take advantage of all the time i have and i'm just gonna like constantly game so every time we would go up there they'd only see me like addicted to the gaming system which really didn't help my case because i would tell them you know if i had one i would not be on it all the time because then i wouldn't be stressed that i wouldn't have time to game but i didn't right you gotta get those gaming hours in while you can <laughs> exactly so like i would i would literally game until i fell asleep and so like i remember when parents would like come in to my cousin's like bedroom where they had a tv and their playstation and they'd like find me asleep with a controller basically in my hand and then when i'd wake up they'd be like see this is why nothing good comes from this bad <laughs> um it right so it finally turned around when the wii came out because my dad decided he wanted the benefits of being able to be, you know, do something physical with the Wii. So then I kind of got around the weird no gaming system rule because I bought myself like the GameCube controller and I would only hook it up to the Wii when my dad was not around. And then I could, I could, I could play some GameCube. <laughs> but that's very clever, by the way. <laughs> that's a great way to do it. GameCube controller is the best. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I know I miss the old gaming systems, actually. It's like, but you know, the games have gotten better now, so I can't really complain. But I'm, I'm curious because I was really excited when I heard about your, your own podcast, History and Games. Can you tell us all a little bit about, you know, when did you have the idea to create the show and just a, a little bit about it? Because I feel like there's a lot of crossover between the gaming fans who probably listen to my show might be looking for something else. 
Well, so History and Games is a video and audio podcast where we celebrate the educational power of video games. So no matter how wacky and weird things get in video games, the truth is always wackier and crazier still. And I like to celebrate that. I like to find fun angles that make history exciting and that make history relevant. But the narrative arc of history and games is kind of unusual. It actually started off as a Twitch stream back in 2015 because Twitch was blowing up then. People were you know, reported to make millions of dollars. We all wanted on the Twitch hype train, but I couldn't figure out like, how is I gonna stick out in a crowded sea of millions of people who are all screaming at their, you know, computer screens while playing games. I wanna do something different. And I was like, I don't know, what can I do? What do I know besides video games? And I was like, I know history. Maybe I'll play history-based games and talk about the history. So it was a Twitch stream for a couple of years but I had a small kind of devoted little audience, but they never wanted to talk about history. They always wanted to talk about other stuff that I was known for because I worked at IGN for over a decade. So people know me for my love of RPGs and wrestling and anime and all that sort of nerdy pop culture stuff. And that's all they wanted to talk about. And I realized that I had a good idea with history and games, but I didn't have the right format. So I started doing an audio podcast in 2019 and then by 2020, I had an Elgato capture card where I could actually do a YouTube version of the podcast as well. And so I've been doing that ever since. Oh, that's pretty fun. So, I mean, I guess the big question for me and maybe people in my audience would be, you know, do you try to seek out specifically history games that, that definitely have it as a huge part of their branding? Or are, are you more just like find any game and then find the history in it so you go broader than the types of games that I normally game with or talk about. So it started off as looking at games that had history in it. So like I did an early episode on the Oregon Trail because it's right there, right? Like that is a history-based game. The whole point was to be accurate and fun and it was, but then I started realizing as I was playing games, almost every game has a really cool historical slant. Usually games borrow from different histories around the world, different cultures. And so, like, you know, if you can take any game, like I said, like The Legend of Zelda or, you know, uh, Final Fantasy, and you can actually find history hidden in these games. I thought the oddest one that I found this whole hidden history of was in Fire Emblem Three Houses, which was a really popular game from 2019. And I initially didn't know how to cover that game. But then while I was playing it, I was like, there's this crazy backstory like that's really confusing but then when you peel back the layers like oh my god this is based on ancient egyptian history and ancient greek history i gotta do something with this so it's kind of based on games that are already tied to history but the fun is really finding popular contemporary games and being like hey they touched on this piece of history that not a lot of people know about yeah it makes sense i mean so stuff that's not super on the nose i am I don't want to say like a hesitant gamer, but I definitely came at it from the other way where to be interested in a game, unfortunately, I feel like I, I need to find the history right away. It needs to be kind of right in my face before I'm like, okay, I'll go and game through that and, and see what it's like. But, you know, I've been... I've I've been away from my PS4 for the last year while studying in Europe, so I've I've been behind in my games. But um, 
yeah, you know, I've just been playing through the last, the newest two Dark Pictures games, and I know one of them's right in that history and horror sweet spot, like ancient Sumerians and Curse of Akkad and all that. Uh, and then the other one's quite a, a bit more contemporary, but it's it's still pleasurable. Yeah, see, and that's great because I cannot play horror games. Like, I am the biggest coward. So it's really cool that somebody is covering that because I just, I can't. It's like the one genre that I've, like, I freeze every time someone, oh, have you played Resident Evil? Have you played Silent Hill? I'm like, nope, and I probably never will. <laughs> it's too scary. So I'm glad that you're covering those games. Uh, within reason, because the thing is, I am actually a big fraidy cat i am so scared of horror like i don't watch horror movies so it it doesn't actually make sense that i like these horror games quote unquote i i think it you know it started because again i was off on like a history tangent and then someone said back in 2015 or whatever oh have you played until dawn uh there's a ton of like native american mythology in it and you know i think it'd be really cool and I remember just thinking, oh, well, no, because I don't like horror, but I guess maybe I'll try. And l thankfully, like, no one told me exactly how scary it was. They said, oh, you know, it's, it's a bit scary, but, you know, the story will take over. So I thought, okay, it probably won't be that bad. I made the mistake of playing it with a friend. At We started it at, like, 10 p.m. in pitch darkness. Oh, jeez. And then because it's, like, a 10, 11-hour playthrough, we played it through in that one night, and I, of course, was screaming, like, half the night and for the next few days, and any time someone, like, came into the house, I was <laughs> screaming. But it was it was worth it, because they were right. Like, the, the story was good enough, and I was intrigued by sort of the, the, the mystery of it. But yeah, it was terrifying. Well, still, still braver than I. I can't even play certain games. Like, I couldn't even get through, like, half of Bioshock in the daytime, or Demon Souls in the daytime because I was just literally white knuckling the whole time. My controller, I was like, "Oh my gosh, what's gonna happen next?" Well, there's this whole subgenre of of his of ancient history, particularly with horror. So I'm, I'm I'm almost curious. Like, would it be easier to get through it if you played it not alone? Like, yes, of course, in the daytime and stuff. But if you had someone like sitting next to you analyzing the history as you go along, would that make it less scary? I wonder. It might make it less scary, but it sort of depends. Like, I know my friends. They would just tease me relentlessly. Like, even if they're history and experts, they would sit there and deliberately try to scare me the whole time. They would just punk me the entire time. So if I could have someone guaranteed not to, like, deliberately try to jump scare me, then maybe I could do it. But I don't trust my friends to be the ones to do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. That must be hard because I definitely have friends who would probably jump scare me. But at the same time, I don't know. You know what? Maybe it's a it's a it would be an exercise in trust just without the physical falling exercise. Right. Where. Right. Can I can I pick you? Can I designate you and trust you to not scare me? Uh, might be kind of a fun experiment. It, it, it might be, but <laughs> we would have to see. Well, okay. Well, we can... <laughs> if any friends are listening to this, please don't scare me, because I'd like to play more horror games, because there are some really cool-looking ones, but I'm very scared, so don't scare me. Yeah, we'll try that trust exercise later. But, yeah, I want to get into it. So, so you said that you were with IGN for a while. Now, is this... I mean, I, okay, I'll back up for a minute. I know what IGN is. I don't know if people more on the history side 
know more than just it reviews video games. Can we back up and can you just explain sort of what you did for IGN before I get into the next set of questions? Sure. So IGN is a video game and sort of pop culture website that does like reviews and previews and interviews for video games and like big pop culture movies like the Marvel movies and comics and all the nerdy pop culture stuff. And for 13 years, I was actually one of their database editors. So I was mostly behind the scenes. So we would put in facts and information about games and we would attach them them to what's called an object so that whenever you looked for a game on IGN, all the video, all the information would come up in one place. So that was my main job. But over the years, they let me sort of come out and review video games and do interviews and features and podcasts. So I got a lot of experience doing sort of the whole gambit at IGN, which was a lot of fun. And it mostly reviewed like role playing games, which is what I'm kind of known for. But I think it surprises people when they find out it's like, oh, I also love God of War and Borderlands and things like that. But I'm mostly known for IPGs and RPGs. Sorry. So that's what I did for over a decade. And is this like a job that you could foresee? Like, is this really a job that a gamer has to do? Or could someone with a history background, like a classics major, but who just doesn't want to go into academia, could they do it? So, I mean, if you have any kind of like copywriting background or writing background, you could definitely do this, you know, type of job that I did, the the database side, you're really just curating content. Um, And so the history part didn't really come into play at all. The history part came in when I left IGN because I'd kind of done the whole gambit there. Like there was nothing else really to do. So I briefly worked at Apple, which I have nothing bad to say about. It was a good experience. It was just a four hour commute every day. And I was like, I can't do four hours. This is ridiculous. But they're very strict about not letting people work from home. And this was before COVID. So I decided to take a year off and be like, well, what do I want to be when I grow up? And that's sort of when the podcast of History and Games started. So that's where the history part comes in. And now I do a lot of freelancing for either reviews or video game consultations to help pay the bills. So, yep, that's what I do. Hey, I mean, it sounds exciting because I think, you know, when coming at it from a more academic background, a ton of friends within the field, they always kind of grumble. And I hear, you know, we're talking about, well, I like doing this thing and I like games or TV and film, but it's hard because you can't make it a full-time job. And then you're like, well, I got to keep teaching on the side. So I don't know. Yeah. It's, I mean, everyone's path is super unique. Yours for sure sounds super unique, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know why it shouldn't be such a struggle, right? To mix love of history and some, any kind of research background with doing Something a little a little different, a little non-traditional. I don't know why it's so, so hard. <laughs> and it is absolutely possible. I mean, I don't know if your audience is familiar with Dr. Jackson Crawford, who is a Norse mythology and language specialist, and he has a whole YouTube channel uh, in which he teaches people, you know, the Norse language and the history and culture. And it's really cool. And of course, he, he is in the academic world. He's taught at several prestigious colleges But uh, it's absolutely possible to sort of find your niche and do what you love. But, you know, I got to warn people, you got to be patient, right? Like you got to build that audience. You got to figure out what it is that you can do that's unique and fun. But if you're really passionate about it, I encourage people to go for it. You know, like 
if you have to keep your day job for a while, that's okay. But don't don't give up on your dreams. For sure, for sure. I completely agree. That's that's kind of why I podcast, just because it's a dream and I want to keep it going. But I also have a day job because I can't <laughs> right just with my show. So you do what you gotta kind of have to do out of desperation. Exactly. Exactly, right? I'm like, it's always a side hustle, but it's going to be a good one. You got to do the hustle, but we're going to make it. We are. But yeah, so for people who might want to check out your show, I mean, I don't know. I've glanced at it just because I will admit I was not familiar with it until I it was suggested to me by Dr. Crawford himself. But, you know, so I'm, I'm curious to know, you do have a great capacity for history and obviously you have all this gaming. So I'm curious to know what is a game, not Zelda, but a game that has surprised you with the amount of historical material or something that you found really cool that you've been able to cover? Um, let's see. So I mentioned Fire Emblem Three Houses before. That was the biggest surprise because I honestly generally did not know how to cover that game. And then I found all this stuff uh, sort of hidden in the background. And that was just that was just such a cool surprise. It's not really surprising, but it was so much fun to cover Assassin's Creed Odyssey, uh, which takes place during the Peloponnesian War. But my very first episode of History and Games was breaking down three things, which is it possible that King Leonidas had, you know, a royal grandchild that was a mercenary. Were there such things as Spartan mercenaries? Did Leonidas have direct descendants, et cetera, et cetera? So I broke down all of these type of questions and I answered them. And I found the answers really, really interesting. And that was sort of the catalyst for doing even more episodes of history and games. Just finding those little surprising details in history that tie directly into games and vice versa is so much fun that I have to like share it with people. I'm like, you guys, you guys. If you played this game, you're not going to believe how it ties into history. Or if you know this history, did you know it's referenced in this game? So like I just did an episode on like Assassin's Creed codenamed Jade and how a very popular Assassin's Creed character could end up being in that game, not just because fantasy reasons, but there's real historical precedent. Like that is so much fun to figure out. So I'm always kind of surprised, but even if it's a straightforward history and game, like games episode, there's something in the details where I sort of dig it up and I'm like, ooh, this is treasure and I gotta show it with the world. I've gotta share it with the world. Nice. I mean, like any history nerd, we have a capacity to love so many different kinds of history, but do, do, do you have a favorite that you like to cover a certain type of mythology or, you know, maybe even a, a certain personage from mythology? I think for me, it's sort of a tie between ancient. Greek history, which is what I know the most, like that's where I'm most comfortable, like people can tell. And then ancient Japanese history, which I've, I've been hugely into Japanese culture since I was, you know, young as well. Thank you, Sailor Moon. Um, so that was, I know anime is always the gateway drug into Japanese culture. It's awesome. And so I think those two are kind of pretty much my favorites because that's sort of what I know the, the best. Um, I guess you could say Tudor England as well, because I find that whole thing a giant soap opera. I can never get enough of it. I think my blind spot in history would have to be like 20th century history because it's so dark and grim and it's too recent. So it doesn't it doesn't feel great to cover because it's so depressing. 
right? And and whereas you know, ancient stuff feels almost like reading about a, like a fantasy world, right? Like it's you know, a lot of fantasy books that I'm really into are based on ancient cultures because it's so far from our modern world. So that's, I think that's why I always love like ancient Greek or ancient Persian or ancient Egyptian history stuff like that. But definitely ancient Greek and ancient Japanese history for sure. What about you? Well, I majored in classics all through undergrad, so definitely my 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 weakness, my great weakness <laughs> is my love for Greek mythology. But you know, for me, the gateway drug, and for a, a lot of for a lot of people, I don't know, it's different because either I've noticed you either get into anime and then suddenly you're into Japanese stuff. Or for me, the gateway drug was ancient Egypt in sixth grade because I had such a great sixth grade history teacher and we like read all the myths and stuff. But yeah, so I like to pretend I'm an armchair Egyptologist and, (laughs) you know, try to judge things, which doesn't always turn out well. But luckily as an adult, you know what, I have enough friends who are actually Egyptologists that I, I feel more confident being like, yes, I've picked this up. I I know this, but no, I'm not an expert in it. That's so romantic, though. That just everyone loves ancient Egypt, and it's so funny you mentioned sixth grade specifically because about that's when I started getting into ancient cultures. Is because I think it's part of the curriculum to introduce ancient Egypt, Egyptian mythology and history. At that point, I remember reading a book about Cleopatra in sixth or seventh grade and being like, and this is the very end of, you know, kind of ancient Egyptian history and just being like, oh my gosh, now I got to read about all this other stuff. Yeah. Well, did you, did you catch on the, the popular trend where I think at that time, fifth, sixth grade, they had released, um, what was it called? Pharaoh, right? It was like the original Pharaoh game where it's kind of like a early Sim City type city builder thing, but you built like ancient Egypt and you had your little pharaoh and, and you'd like decorate the, the palace and stuff. And so you could sort of sit there and imagine what great empire you're going to build. Um, and then. No, I missed I missed that somehow. And I'm sorry I did. That sounds awesome. <laughs> There's a remake. They're making a remake. And I don't know when it's going to be released. But I'm like so hyped for it. I'm like, I'm waiting. All right. I've gonna, I'm going to look that up later. I'm going to I'm going to figure that out because that does it sounds amazing. I know there's a there's a game coming out called um, Builders of Greece. I'm really, really looking forward to where I, I think you just you build basically Greek civilization. I don't know if you start with the Minoans or not. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it just looks like a really fun game. And I'm not sure if it's turn based or real time strategy, but whatever it is, it looks really cool. Yeah, I mean, I would say my personal preference is also trended toward more like open world RPG type things, too. But I will say, like, early on, again, because I couldn't have gaming systems, like, my only backup was I had laptops and stuff, so I had to PC game, you know, super old school. So, yeah, I I had a lot of the, the more, the slower, yeah, like, SimCity type of things. I had Pharaoh, and I grew up playing Civilization Four, which, throwback, Oh, that's definitely a throwback. I was trying to play Civilization Six on my computer, and I was told just the other day my graphics card isn't good enough. And I'm like, but my computer is pretty new. What gives? Because these games are just so massive, right? Like they're so rich in detail. And I'm like, let me play Hojo Tokimune. <laughs> I'm like slamming down on my mouse. Like, come on, just let me in. No, it's like super annoying when you can't. It- 
Although I will admit, I didn't get into Civ 6 because I'm like a hardcore Civ 5 person. And I know there's like oh. a big argument or rivalry over which is better, 5 or 6. Um, and I definitely land on the Civ 5 side. But so that's like the only game that I really play that's not on my PS4 these days. I have it on Steam on my laptop. So I don't know what the graphics look like, but I, I don't game for public consumption. I just game for me and I tend to spend a ton of hours on Civ. So I have to game for public consumption because I have, so I have my history in games YouTube channel, but then I have my regular Meg Sullivan YouTube channel. So like this year has been jammed with video games that you know, back to back to back to back review and they're all massive and they're all huge and I'm going crazy. It's a great problem to have, but man, I just, I can't remember the last time I just gamed to, I think the only game that I've done privately is Final Fantasy 14. I think that's the only one I haven't constantly like talked about. It's like, no, this is my world. This is my imagination. Just let me, just let me be a Benny girl. Oh, the, the struggle is so real. The struggle is so But it is, it does sound like a really great problem to have because you always want too many games instead of too few. I, I definitely feel like. Exactly. Yeah, no, I... Well, and then there's some games that, like, people use that I would never even assume. Like, someone was using Super Smash Bros. Brawl to do some sort of history thing. And I was like, wait, what? I haven't played that since I was, like, 15. Do I need to go back and and, and find the, the history in it? What am I missing? See, that's, that's exactly the kind of content I love. Like, I want to go look that up. Like, what is the historical slant of Super Smash Brothers? I got to know, because I honestly did not think that there would be some sort of historical precedent for it. But I'm clearly wrong. And I just, I love that. That is exactly the kind of content that I want to make and consume. Yes, yes. I, I, I want to learn more about it myself. I mean, yeah, I just, I have so many questions. Because I'm like, well, is it the the... The characters from these certain franchises that make it historical when you put them together. But someone was saying it was about like the the level settings. There was like a they used history to create them and I was like, I don't I don't I need to research this. Like what is what is happening here? I don't I don't know what's happening. Yeah, there's so much but there's so much there, not only that like in games that you want to discover, but like do you feel this way for the history side too, where you're kind of like I want to learn more about this other history that I don't know about, but I have no time to do it, but I want to. I mean, this year it feels, it feels so frustrating to have to like sift through all these games and then be like, which game do I want to cover? Which one will have a really cool history angle and which ones do I have to kind of put to the side? So it's, it, it kind of depends. Like I was actually in the middle of a, a big review and then the trailer for Assassin's Creed codename J dropped and I immediately could think of a historical angle. And I was like, I got to drop everything and focus on this first. The world has to know I have this idea about how we can connect Assassin's Creed Odyssey and codename J together. Like I knew off the top of my head because I had just done a history in games that kind of did something similar a year ago. And I was like, this is awesome. Um, but there are times when I'm just like, you know, I, I really want to cover this. I want to learn more about it, but I just don't have the time to research this, particularly if it's like a big subject, right? Like at one point for Fire Emblem Three Houses, I was thinking, okay, well, maybe this game is based, you know, there's some Celtic mythology in here, but also maybe I can parallel it to the Holy Roman Empire. 
but no matter what, I struggled to like figure out a good angle. So before I, I stumbled on like the ancient Egyptian and Greek stuff, it took me months to puzzle out. I, re I knew I wanted to cover the game, but I couldn't figure out how. And so I was going to shove it off to the side and be like, I just can't find that angle. I just don't have time to research it. So it does happen, you know, where it's just like you've got you, you, you can you try to suss out a really good idea, but you can't quite do it. And sometimes you're just like, I just don't have time. I got to let this go and go on to other stuff, which is always too bad. I know. But you can always come back around to it. That's true, especially when you work with like ancient history stuff, you know, it's going to be there forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no rush. You're not it's not going anywhere. So you're like, exactly. So you can just kind of be like, all right, next time. Yeah, that was kind of me this year. I have made a concerted effort to get more into Old Norse studies and learn more about ancient Scandinavia. But it just seems like there's never enough time because I get pulled into something or other. But then again, I do also a lot of reception stuff for TV and film. So that does unfortunately draw my attention away from games, which uh, like, yes, I like watching and consuming this other media, but then I never have enough time for the games. So it's a bit hard. I don't know. Do you do you do you have that problem as well? Do you kind of find yourself maybe getting drawn by some other form of media that's not gaming or are you pretty able to stay focused and be like no 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 there's just so much here that I don't need to be distracted by the other stuff. So I'm not a huge TV movie person, so I'm I'm kind of lucky that the two hobbies I love most are video games and reading. And so that just slides in nicely with history. I I'm not like, like my family loves movies. Like they can sit down and watch like 10 movies in a row and never move. But I am super energetic and hyper. And I'm like, I don't know how you sit still that long. I don't know what you, how you could possibly do this. So, but for some reason I can sit there and play 10 hours of Harvest Moon and not have a problem with it, right? Like it's kind of weird. So luckily I've never had that issue where there's some other form of media distracting me. Like it's always game related. I'm in the industry. And it's my preferred way to sort of relax and pass the time. So I just got really lucky that I'm always reading about history or playing games about history. So it, it does make my life easier. It's just that this year, there is so much content to consume as a gamer that the biggest stress is figuring out how to cover it all or how to prioritize one game or another. It's, it's, it's weirdly stressful, but like I said, it's like a, it's like a good kind of stress. Well, you're definitely lucky because I would love to not have my attention split in like three or four different ways because I want to <laughs> I want to get to all of the things, but there's not enough hours in life to do so. Right. There's so much content to consume, too. Like, it's insane. Like, I used to watch wrestling all the time and then I finally just let it go. There was actually too much content to keep up with or the same with like TV shows. I finally got burnt out on the MCU because I wasn't able to keep up with everything that they were coming out with. I was like, I need a breather here, Marvel. <laughs> I know, I know. It's in, it's literally insane because I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Because we are in this like overwhelming digital media age, whatever, where it, it's not like you know, if I want to see the the thing I want to see, I got to wait for it to come on Saturday morning cartoons at 10 a.m. And then I can catch it there or else it's gone for another week or something. So we're we're super oversaturated now. So um, for sure, I think our our brains are split in, in, in more ways than ever. And it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. So, I mean, kudos. Yeah, that, really. <laughs> that you don't have this problem. But 
I don't know. Like, so, and in, in, when you're covering, like, historical elements and things within the game, I'm a little curious. Like, do you like to cover some of the stuff that almost, like, I wouldn't consider it, but, like, other people might consider it sort of the minutia within. So there's, like, the surface level. How does this connect to a history or a mythology kind of on the surface? But do you pay attention to stuff like ancient inspired music in games? And I guess when I'm saying this, I'm thinking actively of, like, the Assassin's Creed games because, for me, it's become an obsession that I, like, listen to these soundtracks because they sound like the ancient environments that they're recreating. Did you notice that there actually is an ancient Greek song in Odyssey that plays? Yeah. And they, they have they have a couple of them in there. And I, I think one is an ode to the sun. And I can't remember what the name of the other one is. But I immediately recognized it walking around. I was like, oh, my God, these people have done their research. Bless them. I'm always so impressed with Ubisoft's ability to just really deep dive. I mean, I was looking around as Cassandra. I was looking around in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, Athens, and I was on top of the Parthenon. And I was like, if I turn left and look slightly down, there should be the Temple of Hephaestus there. If I look over towards the west, that should be the Piraeus. If I look this way, I should be facing north. And everywhere I faced was exactly where things were supposed to be. And I was really impressed. I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I actually can get my bearings in this game. That is crazy. So I, I actually platinum. I don't usually chase trophies in video games, but I got the platinum trophy for that game because I could not stop playing it. I loved it so much. The details were so incredible. They they don't miss. No, oh my gosh, wait. You, you're literally describing me. Like, I don't care about platinum in games unless I, I there's a reason that I really love it. But yeah, that was like the first Assassin's Creed that I, I was like, I have to platinum it in every way possible and it's it's a bit shameful but i think i have like i definitely have over a thousand hours played in it it makes sense it absolutely makes sense i've i never finished the final dlc because i don't think i ever wanted to come out of the game like i'm one of those people where sometimes i'll put off the ending of a book or a movie or a tv show or something because i'm like i don't really want this to end so i know i'm i'm supposed to be talking to persephone in the game right now the dlc and i'm like i just i can't i can't move forward i'm stuck because I, I, I don't think i want to leave it behind because it's like i don't want cassandra's story to end it's just it was so good no i definitely did that i like had a billion i created like two new save files so i never had to you know i could get close but never actually poke the final bear like if i accidentally triggered the final cutscene, i could be like nope delete this go right back yep. to that save file but yeah, and, and they were like massive DLCs too. They weren't just like little, little things. No, they weren't. They were, they're big DLC, like, like huge in content. So I appreciate that. Like three whole chapters. So yeah, no, I, I definitely platinum the crap out of Odyssey. But I don't know, have you gone through Valhalla or Origins? So I didn't play Valhalla or I haven't played Valhalla yet. It's not that I don't want to, but there was never time. And I knew the game was huge and other games had to take priority. So time just kept passing. And then people started having split opinions on it. Either people really loved it or they were kind of meh on it. Uh, I do plan to play Assassin's Creed Mirage, though. 
which takes place in like the Middle Ages outside of Baghdad. And it sounds really cool. I'm not sure how I feel about it going back to the original Assassin's Creed formula. I always had mixed feelings about the first three or four games, but I'm looking forward to the history and story a lot. So I will definitely play that game. And then one day I will play Valhalla. I just don't know when I'm going to have time. It's not going to be in 2023. I can tell you that. It is too stacked a year. <laughs> yeah, no, it's huge. I didn't think I realized how big it was going to be. I mean, because from my perspective, I was sitting here like Odyssey was freaking huge. It took a billion hours. Like, oh, God, I don't know if I can handle something that. But then it was marketed to me as it's shorter than Odyssey. So then I was like, oh, great. So... It'll be shorter. We're good. Um, yeah, it still took like 60 hours to get through the main storyline. So I was like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then they added so many DLCs and other things to it. Then I was like, yeah, no, I can't save it. It's huge. But yeah, you know, I would say that was the game that finally got me on to it, like kicked my ass into gear to really start to prioritize getting into the Scandinavian mythology and the history because I didn't like I knew it because that's the thing this big game would open the can of worms and I was like I was not prepared to go down this and it seemed too big but then I started the game and then I was like well I don't like going through this not knowing the historical references right um it was a bit uncomfortable so I felt like I I can't not go into that deep dive because I need to know what I'm looking at you know like I yeah I think pretty early on I I got through you know, the first couple hours, and I was like, okay, I don't understand anything. I need to stop. So then I did take some time to, like, read through, like, history books. And then it made so much sense, but then looking back at, like, baby me before I started learning, like, I didn't, I didn't even recognize the reveal of Fenrir with Odin, and I was like, wow, that was a big one to miss. This is embarrassing. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Like, I didn't I didn't recognize who the Weavers were, similar to the, the, the Fates, and I was like, oh, God. So, yeah, I was I was very delayed. Um, so, yes, it's a, it's a big thing. So, you know, if you're not up on your Scandinavian mythology, you might want to brush up. <laughs> sure, but, you know, the good news is it makes you want to learn history, right? Like, it's a motivation. That's what we're talking about, the educational power of video games. So, good job, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. You probably got a lot of people into Norse history and mythology. Mission accomplished. Exactly. And this is why I tell, I talk to academics all the time. I spend like 80% of my life telling academics, hey, this is really good. It may not be super accurate, but you'll make your students interested to learn. So you should put this in your classroom. And then they don't most of the time. (laughs) Missing out. And I get very sad. And I get very sad. I just, I'm like, why is Archeogaming not a bigger trend in academia? Like guys this is cool there's like a ton of crossover and like valuable lessons that you can glean from both but um i don't know i don't know i i definitely play more rpgs but i know strategies are really popular for classrooms and like stuff like minecraft that's like huge apparently in academic circles and i had no idea i was like why is minecraft so popular i don't know i i I still don't really yeah there's a cool YouTube channel. Is it called Archeo Gaming? I forget, but it's it's a girl who actually teaches detailed archaeological lessons while playing Minecraft. And it's really, really cool. And I recommend people go check it out. I found it serendipitously. And I was like, see, this is this is a great learning tool. Like games do not rot your brain. They really can 
educate people and get people interested in this kind of thing, right? Like you can take any subject matter and turn it into a game, whether it's art, history, math, science, you know, and get people interested in learning. Well, you've worked in games, so this might be perfect. Just from your perspective of, of coming from the game side rather than the academic side, obviously we have a ton of historical games that are more the 4X strategy, kind of non-super violent that parents might be more of a fan of. But then we do have things like Assassin's Creed where, okay, yes, it's got some violence in it and RPG elements, but you can really go and... Exp- I, I feel like the exploration is much better in RPGs. So, like, you know, if you were going to suggest or... or, or take one of these two distinct styles and say, well, this one might be uh, a little bit easier to get into classrooms or whatever. Is there a strong argument for why you should have one type of game versus another one? Or does it not really matter? I think strategy games, because they sort of require like logic and the way they play out are probably the easier way to get people into learning about history because there's a formula you can follow about like, how to build a civilization and who these leaders are, right? Like it's sort of built into the system. Like most history-based games tend to be strategy games, but at the same time, it would be kind of cool if, if teachers would think outside the box. For example, if you've played a game called Hades, which is a roguelike action RPG, that is really, really well researched when it comes to Greek mythology and a little bit of Greek history. And so that can be a learning tool where kids have fun, like trying to escape Hades over and over and over again. They die, they get better equipment, they learn more about the story, and then they go. But you unlock more and more information about characters and about Greek mythology and history. And it's in a very fun, clever way. But those are kind of more difficult arguments because teachers who, if, if you're not already in the gaming space, you may not appreciate that. So the way to kind of go is like strategy games, which are based, you know, like when my brother was younger, he played the Civil War strategy game all the time on PC. Or you've got, a, someone was just telling me the other day about like Age of Mythology, which is all about like, you know, the gods, the Trojan War or something like that. So I feel like strategy games are probably the entry point because it's it's the most obvious way to connect history and video games. Even Oregon Trail is basically a role-playing game, right? Like there is some strategy and some customization involved. And what about things like uh, tabletop RPGs? I mean, maybe also for like a school environment, is do you think it's going to be more, like it's pretty important to have almost like a, a physical or interactable component to get you into history because i mean obviously strategy same as rpg they they both you can't really touch they're they're definitely screen based but sure no absolutely anything that is tangible is going to definitely be better for a classroom environment because you know you're actually physically there with other students working together you know for a common goal or even if you're playing against each other it's always better to interact in person, honestly. Now, I am terrible at tabletop games. Let me just say that. <laughs> For some reason, I always mess up. The last one I played was Cthulhu with my friends at work, and we were all terrible at that game. The, the point is to survive that game, and none of us survived after like three weeks of playing. So we were terrible at it. Um, but it was really fun actually physically interacting with people and you know using your imagination. 
and just like physically writing things down or drawing things or whatever. I, I definitely think that that is another thing that teachers should concentrate on is like getting everyone together in a shared space and physically and, you know, just emotionally sharing their experience. And the last kind of gaming that I can think of off the top of my head, do you think escape rooms are a good method of teaching? Or could they, does that one tread the line of like, it could be quite frustrating because if you don't understand it, you're not going to get out and then you just get mad and then you don't learn anything. I think if it's done correctly, right? Like if you get the right people setting up the the whole game it would make sense like escape rooms are fun if everyone cooperates and understands the rules so if you want to make it like history based you know finding that thread to get people in and out is super important i'm not great at those either so i leave it to smarter people to figure out how to do that but again anything that gets you interested in history you know whether it's tabletop games or video games or escape rooms like having people participate and use their imagination is super important so i think it's possible that yeah escape rooms can be a great uh learning tool it just has to be done right yeah no it's pretty hard i i frequently sit around and and kind of imagine well if we were gonna do one because they are kind of fun and interactable but like how would you do it and and i think the only thing that people have been able to really come up with was you know well you could do a one that sort of teaches you language the ancient languages because you could you know put like ancient writing and then and then try to have people understand it but even then that's hard see that's a great idea yeah yeah, it's hard, but that it's absolutely possible. And that would be super fun, right? And people remember it because they're very involved in escaping, right? So <laughs> they're going to remember those words. I would hope so. If not, well, then it was terribly put together if you don't remember the thing. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm particularly good at escape rooms either. But, you know, I've just, I've had, I have had the great fortune of having a lot of friends who love them and so I've been invited to participate in quite a lot and every single one was different and exciting and historical in its own way I think like there was one about the the Roswell aliens and I was like oh yes teach me about government cover-ups and aliens (laughs) right it gets you interested yeah like 1957 or whatever and then there was like another one that was like Harry Houdini and I was like oh yes teach me about this I know nothing And then there were some horror ones that I did not willingly go into because I did not think they would be, well, I didn't know they were horror. So I went in and then got the pants basically scared off me. So, oh, geez, you know, it's, it's a struggle. It is. But yeah, no, I'm super, super excited to see what people are constantly coming up with. But kind of just to sort of end our discussion about the games themselves, I'm curious to know. So obviously... We archeo game with games because we want to learn about the history within either the setting, if it's in a historical setting, or we learn about the mythologies that maybe they're basing stories around. But I'm curious to know whether you also consider the physical video game itself, like a piece of history as well, because there's that sort of lesser talked about aspect especially within archeo gaming where we talk so much about history in games but about but what about the history of like the game itself as history do you cover that uh i don't cover that although i might have later on some experts who do cover that actual physical aspect of video games those who work hard to preserve actual video game boxes and cartridges and consoles 
um, because they are a part of our history. You know, one day someone is going to find a bazillion ET cartridges out there, you know, of, of, of ET video games, right? And wonder what the heck is this? Right. And so by preserving that history, people in the future will have context for it because I've sort of been alive for a lot of the narrative arc of video games so far. And it's really amazing how it went from, you know, Atari 2600 to Nintendo, which was 8-bit and then Super Nintendo 16-bit, 32-bit, 64, etc. And now we have almost lifelike realistic graphics. So, you know, seeing that now we don't even really have physical copies of things anymore. Everything is digital. And it's actually hard to find physical copies. You have to go to some place like Limited Run to get physical copies of certain games. So I definitely think it is an important part of the discussion. I think history, like history, or sorry, video games are a part of history, like actual history. And I'm really glad that there are people writing about it and covering it because it is so a part of our culture now. I mean, most people, even if they don't consider themselves gamers, they've played video games. You know, if they've played Candy Crush on their phone that is a video game you are a gamer if you play you know marvel snap you are a gamer um if you played farmville back in the day on facebook or whatever like you are a gamer so gamification of everything has brought everyone together and we're all sort of a part of that history and it's important to preserve it yeah for sure i couldn't agree more and now if we have a lot of games out here obviously but do you have a game either set in a certain location or covering a certain mythology or culture that we haven't seen done that you would like to see done sometime soon i yes i would like assassin's creed to take place in pre-columbian mexico the aztecs the mayans uh, you know teotihuacan i don't care just like cover pre-columbian times please because it's so interesting so fascinating it is constantly overlooked. I don't know why, because these were really sophisticated, really amazing cultures. And I'm like, oh, an Assassin's Creed game set, you know, if you're part of the Mayans or the Aztec or just, ah, it's just right there. And it drives me crazy. We don't have more games that cover pre-Columbian, you know, Mexico and South America. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I understand sort of that they do their own thing, but I mean, I'm, I've, I've, been sitting here just like you're only now doing japan which is like the most obvious setting but of course they waited until after ghost of tsushima so now everyone's like well why do we need that because now we have ghost and you're like but <laughs> right see that's what happens when you wait too long you got to jump on the opportunity while you can and i'm a little frustrated like codename jade looks really cool but assassin's creed codename jade is actually a mobile title yeah. And I've been wanting an I wanted an ancient Chinese setting forever for Assassin's Creed. It's on a mobile game. And I'm like, oh, there's nothing inherently bad about that. But it's not my favorite way to play games. So I was hoping they would at least have a console version of some sort. I know. Me too. I was like, guys, please. Like, I know that um, they are doing kind of the, the I think the Japanese. Japan one is going to be for major consoles. But yeah, I was very upset. I, I won't lie. I was like, well, China, but like, yeah, not for mobile, please. <laughs> I, you know, I if I had it my way, like, I mean, I know that the Assassin's Creed franchise is, is busy expanding and, and doing like 10,000 other things. So I guess you have projects shunted to the side. But, you know, if I had it my way, I'd be like, well, I know that Codename Hex sounds cool, but I'm like, it's just going to be in, like, Central Europe, 
doing witch stuff and i'm like couldn't that one be the mobile one instead yeah i feel like they've covered something similar where it's you know they haven't been to china they haven't been to japan you know it just it, it that's kind of a weird one it's like you know the blair witch project was decades ago come on people let's catch up <laughs> but i don't know we, we haven't seen anything really about it so it could be cool i'm, I'm gonna keep an open mind same. I, I was like, I will keep an open mind for all your future things, but I definitely know that there are big places that I would like to see too. You know, I'd like to see the Aztecs or the Maya, um, you know, maybe Aztecs and conquistadors. I don't know, something cool. Let's, I mean, you could easily weave in the mythology of like the Fountain of Youth and De Leon and stuff like that. But um, Right, exactly. It's right there. Right? I was like, it's, it's oh, that's so obvious. So, uh... I'm sure I'm sure that they have people who've like brought this up, but I'm sure they also have a, a method to their their development. So so we'll just have to wait. But but watch, someone's going to develop a game in, in these settings and then we're all going to get mad and say, well, now it's too late if you want to do it because now we have something else. Right, right. So, you know, it's pretty hit or miss at this point. But anyway, yeah, I digress. Uh, the The gaming space is so fast changing and I... You know, it's it's fast changing for me and I'm not even like the most intense gamer. So for people within the industry, I can't even imagine what it must feel like to just be like, oh, no, no, oh, this is new. Oh, OK, this is coming. Wait, <laughs> you know, having to having to pick what's what's coming down the line. Yeah, there are at least 15 games in the next three months that I'm going to have to choose between. And that is not going to be easy. OK, but but great problem. To have. Great problem to have. But wait, OK. Is there like an all-time history game that you would pick that you could say like this is I don't want to say the pinnacle because we could still develop new stuff but like something you know that has a long legacy of being cited as one of the top history games. Oregon Trail. I mean, it is kind of it's kind of the first and best. I mean, it is so like amazingly accurate to the history and it's just so much fun to play. So I think that is still my favorite. That's one that has really long legs that you can play at any age. And they occasionally remake it and, you know, remaster it to sort of keep up with the times. But that's kind of the first game that comes to mind. It's just Oregon Trail, never gets old, still educational. But, you know, now with more up-to-date versions, it's also more accurate and more fair. So Okay, yeah. No, that's pretty cool. Sticking with it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I don't know. That just popped into my head because I was thinking of, like, this legacy, like, the prince of persia games or like tomb raider or something just because i'm like oh people seem to just talk about that all the time and and cite it and everything you know oh something comes out in the desert oh it's another tomb raider or stuff like that (laughs) right yeah i mean those those kind of games are fun fantasy games like i love prince of persia sands of time but it's not always terribly historically accurate but you know i could probably make a history and games episode out of it um and i have no idea what uh what the new Prince of Persia is going to be about. They changed a lot about it. It still looks cool, but we'll just have to see. But yeah, Oregon Trail is just kind of like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, like they did, again, they did update some things, right, to be more reflective of history and much more fair. Like indigenous people were, you know, portrayed in that sort of cowboy Indian way back in the 70s, which isn't accurate at all. But I think they changed that to be much better. So that's the good news. So but yeah, there's a lot of games that, you know, civilization does a lot that's good. I mean, you can speak more to that to me as a giant civilization fan. But a lot of the strategy games sort of have that advantage of like they can weave the history in 
and be more accurate than say fantasy games, which are only sort of touching on mythology and history. For sure, for sure. And just to sort of end on a, on a happier note, you know, I I saw your show is you know a couple years old, and it's 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 it looks like it's doing well, it's growing. But what does ultimate success look like for you for your show? Is it just you know getting more people invested in the history and video games? Is it getting gamers more interested in history is it all of the above is there another goal that i cannot think about <laughs> i think it's really trying to get people interested in history i had a lot of coworkers at ign for example who weren't really into history i was talking to someone at lunchtime once and i was making a joke about you know caesar augustus and they were like who's caesar and at first i thought they were joking like they were deadpanning me and they weren't. And I was like, okay, it's that's a little strange because you grew up in the same sort of white American European household. And Caesar was like one of the first things you learn about. And you don't know who that is or you're blanking. And I, hmm, this needs to be fixed. But I also want to make sure that when I talk about history and games, it's not just Eurocentric because... Too much of our history focuses on that. So one of the fun things about video games is more and more they're trying to find interesting angles to cover other civilizations and other cultures. Um, so it's not just a great way to educate people, but a great way to educate myself as well. So learning is the ultimate goal. What does it look like? You know, what does my victory parade look like? That I somehow get like a little mini show on, I don't know, like History Channel or BBC or Netflix or something, right? Like that's kind of the secret goal we all have or just like somehow we make money and we become famous for this. But even just like teaching people about history and, and making them interested in it, like that's an accomplishment. I'll take it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, I would rather just have people interested and wanting to curate that interest in, in some way, I don't care how I do it, but if, if it gets people interested, that's, that's a good stepping stone. So it sounds like, uh, you're headed in a good direction. And I, and I, I sincerely hope that by now you've, you've told your, your coworker knows who Caesar is now. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I might have to quiz them later. <laughs> we'll see if he says anything about pizza, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> I think I'd be more mad if it was salad. If they were like, yes, I know what Caesar is. It's salad. I would be like, it's salad. Yes. Yes, that's right. Caesar Augustus created the Caesar salad in Mexico. Sure. Whatever. Oh, yikes. Yikes. Okay. Well, I, I I hope that they, for their sake, they they know who it is or learn quickly who it is. Yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, I mean, so we've been talking about the legacy of games and, and sort of the history, and we've, we've run through a lot of these great things, and hopefully it's been kind of a mini history lesson in history and video games and their development. So to keep along with this theme at the end of each podcast episode, I ask if each of my guests will read Percy Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, because this poem has been quoted and cited by a lot of people as being pretty memorable one of the more memorable poems they that they read and so after reading it I'd just be interested to to see if you sort of agree with this assessment and just other general thoughts of you know what do you think of this poem Mother's Day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones Blue Nile has something she'll adore need it fast most items can ship overnight 
Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well, those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That's a very profound poem. I like it. I do. Right? It makes me wonder, you know, you see these colossal stone statues and great civilizations of the past, and, you know, you wonder how they did it, how they lived their lives, if they lived grander, better lives. And in fact, I was having a conversation with one of my friends about the systems collapse in the Bronze Age, which happens in the 12th century BCE, when all these great civilizations in a short period of time just sort of disappear or they crumble. And then hundreds of years later, you know, the classical Greeks, you know, ancient Romans, they come along and see these ruins of the Minoans and the Mycenaeans and the Hittites. And they think, you know, what is this? Who were these great people? They must have lived in a better time, a golden age or a silver age or a bronze age, but not the garbage iron age. Right. And they thought the same thing after the collapse of Rome, like, like, who were these amazing supermen who created these great monuments? Were they better men than us? And is this a dire warning that this could happen to us as well? There's a lot, there's a lot to unpack here. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, and and I love how popular culture picks up on it. And I know there have been several pop culture things now with either just the name Ozymandias or something that references the poem in, in some way. So I love how people pick up on it. And it's funny because I played Shadow of the Colossus and the only thing I could think the, the entire time I was like playing that game was Ozymandias, Ozymandias. This is all ruins and shit that's going to fall down. <laughs> right? Like it, it, that's actually a great parallel is like yeah that is very much shadow of the colossus which is just a very atmospheric very i don't know quite how to say it but just like like emotional game even though there's like not a lot of talking and there's not a ton of hand holding but it's it's a very profound game yeah i felt like and and that's kind of like why i got it because i didn't half these games i really i know nothing about and i'm like i guess from the title or the cover art it sounds good and i'll i'll try it but yeah because I, I found myself thinking it's very like cinematic it's meant to just be almost like you walk around and you just look at things right like you don't necessarily have to do much i mean you, you can if you want to but also you can sort of walk around and, and just look but yeah i know it's this idea of monumentality and impermanence and so i guess like that game and the poem are very they're, they're kind of mirror images of, of each other but i also like it because when you know the background of the poem it's shelley was writing this and he was influenced by an old statue of ramesses the second that was uncovered in egypt and it was coming to the british museum and so he just sat down and wrote this sonnet and i was like well i wish i had those skills just to look at a statue and then write something as beautiful but yeah no he packs a lot in there and i think you hit the nail kind of right on the head of you know what kind of grand civilization is this but also is it gonna last and you know you can think about it so many different ways like video games are we gonna have video games that stand out that will still stay great hopefully for forever that's debatable but i think yeah that you know it's it's it speaks at its heart to impermanence and what are you know what are we going to think is great and so kind of in the in the spirit of of all these great thoughts that this poem usually brings up for myself and and guests the last question i kind of ask everyone is if we take a minute to think about our culture our contemporary society right now do we have like an, a modern Ozymandias, you know, something to think is kind of monumental or great or that it'll be around forever. And But realistically, you know, you know, shoot forward like 500 years or our future humans going to agree with our assessment. You know, are they going to look back at the same kind of games or whatever we have and say, yep, that's great. That's here. It's forever. Wow. I'm going to try to keep it in the realm of games too, because it's easy to like point to like modern things like, I don't know, the Statue of Liberty or the Eiffel Tower, right? But we're talking about video games, right? Like what's that game that's always going to sort of be there, right? And it's going to be probably something that has endured for many decades, like, you know, Pac-Man or Super Mario Brothers, right? Something somebody can find you know, an old copy of the original Nintendo Entertainment System, you know, Super Mario Brothers or like Duck Hunt or something, right? Like, it'll be one of those really early physical copies of games that sort of pave the way for other video games, right? Like the sort of the foundation of that. So I think it'll either be like an arcade cabinet that's going to have something like, I don't know, Donkey Kong, or it will. It will be one of the early game cartridges that will have one of the popular games out there. 
Um, or people are really going to be confused and think, wow, that E.T. game really was popular. All of these copies just buried together must have been a religious ritual of some kind. I mean, <laughs> who knows what people will think, you know, 2000 years from now when they're just like, who were the Super Mario Brothers? How were they worshipped? <laughs> you know? No, it's true. It's true. I was thinking about that the other day, just with like a different example, like Mickey Mouse. Like I was I was in a conversation with a friend and I was like, what if our civilization kind of died overnight and then aliens came and then they just found this like giant statue of Mickey Mouse? Are they going to be like, these people are weird. They're worshiping a mouse. Yeah. A literal mouse. <laughs> so uh, it's like the same thing with all these like Nintendo Super Mario World parks and stuff. They'll just come and they'll see like a giant statue of mario or peach or yoshi or something i'll be like are these their gods right you know they'll, they'll find the universal theme park and be like okay so i guess they you know had a ruler named princess peach i mean <laughs> who knows what they're going to think so uh, thus i i applaud all those who are trying to accurately document the narrative arc of video games so there's not that type of confusion Although I'm just saying, you know, if you want to assume that we all, you know, worshipped, you know, Link from Legend of Zelda or something, it could be worse. Could be much worse, actually. There's some great video game characters, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't be mad. Now, there's some definitely I would be kind of mad. I'd be like, eh, we want to choose this. But yeah, no, I'm going to. The jury's out on the games. We'll see. We need to get to 2,000 years from now to see if, if um, what we think is great is going to stay that way. So future humans hopefully they can listen to this podcast episode and then think about it and then have an answer so yeah i there was so much that i didn't get to but obviously that always happens with podcasts i'm sure you encounter that as well but you know i just want to thank you again for for coming on the show and talking some some game shop i so rarely get to talk to other gamers who love history so uh it's been a kind of fun departure from from the normal academic stuff and yeah i hope you can come back for something absolutely yay video games yes <laughs> trireme transit is now departing ancient office hours next stop is present ponderings deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.